Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison, and I am pleased to announce that this episode will cover the Grand Prix of Catalonia that was recently held up in Montmelo outside of Barcelona. I'm not alone in this affair. I am joined by the celebrated owner and author of uh, all those wonderful works of uh, of writing you see on motomatters.com, Mr. David Emmett. David, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, Neil, and I hope you are doing well in that there Barcelona. Yes, the temperature has risen a few degrees since the race weekend, I must say, it is a little bit sweaty, a little bit humid. But, uh, well, I'm sat here with uh, the fan on full blast, thankfully, and, uh, well, things are well. We're going to go over some of the action. Wasn't the most exciting uh, MotoGP race, I think we could say, this year we have seen uh, some way from that, and that is in large part due to the feats of one man, uh, Mr. Jorge Lorenzo, basically the talk of the entire MotoGP town has surrounded this man in the last couple of weeks. Uh, David, this was uh, vintage Jorge, um, going back to you know his, uh, his very best days back in 2013, 2015, uh, the others just really didn't get a look in, did they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was just metronomic, uh, uh, Lorenzo. Um, the, uh, the lap time variation was minimal from start to finish. Um, he was never really, uh, it was never really challenged. It, it technically he didn't leave to lead the first lap because, uh, Mark Marcus got off the line out of him. Um, uh, which is unusual, but because um, uh, normally he leads, lights to flag, but uh, he had to set he had to settle himself with leading every lap but one rather than um, every single lap. Uh, but it was just typical: get out in front and then just crank, crank up the pressure, um, go as fast as you can, uh, let others try and follow him, and uh, they couldn't. Simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting to listen to some of the riders after qualifying talking about the tyres, about the track surface, about the heat. Uh, more than one rider said this was going to be a race of survival, that we we're going to see quite a big drop off in terms of tyres. Uh, it wasn't quite as uh, severe as we saw, as we expected, perhaps. Um, but even though the temperatures were so high and tyres maybe weren't perfect for everyone, it was quite outstanding or quite remarkable that Lorenzo managed to lap, I think, in the one minute 40s all the way through the race up until the final lap? Pretty much. I mean, the first half of the laps, he was sort of, you know, in the low 40s and in the um, uh, uh, 140s. And in the second half of the of the race, he was in the sort of high 140s. So he did uh, something like 10 laps all within, you know, three tenths of a lap. Then he dropped his pace about two or three tenths and did the rest of the uh, rest of the race within about three tenths uh, three tenths of a second so it was uh, really incredible remark uh, incredibly remarkable and i mean what i th- what i found also quite interesting was the fact that mark marquez um tried pushing him the first half of the race until basically until dovicioso andrea dovicioso managed to fall off uh, and at that point, um, Marquez understood that he was taking too many risks and um, uh, he didn't need to do that anymore for the championship and uh, just uh, backed off and let let Lorenzo go. And um, it was an extremely comfortable win. Yeah, it was quite remarkable for sure. Um, also- the other thing is he, he looks like he was on the Yamaha again. He looked exactly like he was on the on the Yamaha again, you know, just cranking out the same. He looked as comfortable and he's just cranking out the same sort of uh, the, the same sort of rhythm. And where has this change come from? Because he was nowhere in the first three races, absolutely nowhere. Finishing behind Tito Rabat at uh, the Circuit of the Americas, outside the points until the final two laps, I think, uh, the Grand Prix of Argentina. Um, some way off the, the leading bunch in Qatar. 
Um, and then suddenly this jump from a, a pretty listless showing in, in Le Mans, where he was beaten by two other Ducatis, satellite Ducatis. And, uh, well, he's pretty much walked away the Italian Grand Prix and the Grand Prix of uh, Catalonia. Well, where's well, the change? There's a well. There's there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, uh, like Lamai, uh, if you look at the sort of result, the result doesn't look fantastic. But he did lead lead what the first eight or nine laps. I fear I I I forget exactly. Same at Jerez, he led he led for a few laps. Uh, Argentina was a completely different kettle of fish because that was his his kryptonite. It was uh, mixed conditions. And um, Lorenzo and mixed conditions are not going to, uh, they're not going to be friends uh, until the day he retires. Uh, but clearly this, this, uh, this tank spacer, this, this piece of plastic, which fits to the, to the rear of the, of, of, well, we call it the fuel tank, but it isn't really the fuel tank. It's the, it's the space where the fuel tank used to be on, uh, on proper motorbikes. Um, uh, uh, it's a little bit wider. It's a little, uh, in fact, it's significantly wider. Um, it actually looks like a proper round old fuel tank, whereas most modern sport bikes have this very thin, narrow thing um, that just sort of gets in the way, uh, um, which is supposed to, you know, give them lots of room to, to to move around. But this allowed him to use his legs to brace himself while he was braking, and that actually saved his um, uh, allowed him to save his energy and keep up his strength, not just for the first. You know, sort of half of the race, but from the first half of the race to the to, to the end of the race. This was the first occasion um, we saw Lorenzo speaking in public after that surprising announcement that he was going to be joining Repsol Honda at the end of 2018 to team up with Mark Marquez in a, an all Spanish uh, dream team. Um, this must be really strange for Ducati now because they've won two races in a row. Uh, the Vizioso was second at Mugello and well was looking pretty strong. Should have been on the podium, you would say, in the Grand Prix of, uh, well, last weekend's Grand Prix, uh, but for that mistake. Yeah. Um, you know, this bike looks like it is maybe the best, strongest package on the grid at the moment. Um, you know, the Honda's definitely running it close. Um, but you have to imagine Ducati management are, are feeling slightly conflicted at the moment. Seeing Lorenzo put in these kinds of performances and knowing that, uh, well, if the championship doesn't happen this year, he'll be gone in 2019. Yeah, I mean, well, what was what was interesting is uh, Dominicali's comments afterwards uh, about the fuel tank. Because everyone everyone goes on about this fuel tank, um, or this uh, basically this tank space, this this piece of plastic around the fuel tank. Um, uh, but of course, it's just a tiny. It's just one part of the entire package which they've managed to put together. And Dominicali was very very keen to uh, uh, point this out to say this was you know one piece in the jigsaw puzzle, not. Uh, not the be all and end all. It wasn't, you know, like a silver bullet. It's just that uh, they'd made all these changes. They've given them a more flexible chassis to help it change. They've softened the um, uh, softened the engine, softened the throttle response to make it a little bit uh, a little bit smoother. Uh, all of these changes, all aimed at, at helping Lorenzo be able to ride this. But he needed this this past little the, this last little piece of puzzle piece to actually uh, be able to ride it and of course there's the, the, there is the fact that um perhaps um the if you like emotional release of of knowing his future and uh, being able to leave ducati sort of frees his mind and uh, takes away a lot of the stress and uh, uh, well it takes away a lot of stress but also helps 
provide a major motivation because Domenicali has always made it clear that he didn't uh, uh, that he didn't really want Lorenzo, and uh, so being able to, um, well. Give Dominicali a big fu is uh, is very much a a major motivation, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say so indeed. And uh, for any of our listeners, I just want to point out the the lengths uh, to which David had to go to there to avoid swearing. It really was quite impressive seeing him <laughs> subbing up all his inner strength to do that. So I congratulate <laughs> you on that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would say that that definitely does prove um, a major motivator. Um, we spoke to a couple of people last weekend about the Lorenzo da Honda move. Now, on paper, it really doesn't sound like a good fit. Um, Kyle Crutchlow and Jack Miller. Well, listen to Jack Miller this year, and he'll tell you all about the differences between uh, the Honda and the Ducati and how much easier his life is aboard a Ducati than it was a couple of years ago. He says, basically, he's finishing races and still having the strength to get off the bike. He's not feeling completely spent. He's able to focus right until the final lap. And he said on the Honda, that just wasn't really um, an option. Um, how do you think he's going to go next year? Is this, uh, you know, can is this retrievable? Can he can he challenge Marquez? Uh, it's really good. It's going to be really, really interesting. I think the other thing is that, I mean, uh, the, certainly the Ducati and the Honda are very physical bikes, but they're very physical in a very different way. I mean, and they're also... Completely different uh, d- design philosophies. The the Ducati is much longer and much lower than the uh, uh, the Honda. The Honda is sort of uh, tall and short, and it's all about pitching from uh, you know from one end to the other. Uh, that's um, that's tiring and in a completely different way. It's it, it's tiring in that you're trying to you're struggling to keep the front down. Um, th- that's not something which the uh, which the Ducati riders have to worry about because they have uh, so much uh, you know so much mechanical grip. The the, the thing that that Lorenzo was struggling with. Uh, aboard the Ducati was his arms getting very tired under braking and that uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, I haven't heard anyone complain about that on the uh, uh, on the Honda on the Honda they just complain about you know trying to keep the thing under control coming out of corners and it, it appears to turn corners you know it, it, because it is short it is much more um uh, nimble at getting at getting around corners than, than than the Ducati is, so he shouldn't have so much. Uh, and well, as Mark Marcus manages to demonstrate all the time, uh, it's also capable of hanging on to some lean angles. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. Someone compared to Lorenzo to Lorenzo style to uh, Danny Pedrosa, so uh, that perhaps might give us a clue. Yeah, for sure, and I think it's probably worth pointing out that the Honda, although far from being a perfect bike in 2018, is much improved with a, a better engine, a better uh, punch out of the corners, better acceleration. Um, better electronics. That, yeah, better electronics. It seems that they're, they're not having to fight as hard uh, to keep the front wheel down as they were in previous seasons. And of course, Miller last year was on a, you know, a sort of a basic version of the 2017 RCV. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the yeah, comparisons that he's making is is you know uh, one or two steps behind what uh, what Crutchlow and, and Marquez and Pedrosa are using this year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, uh, Miller was on the on the cheapest available version of the uh, uh, of the bike, which which is pretty pretty old, which is not that much difference to the bike with which. Uh, well, the, the bike on which um, Mark Marquez couldn't win the championship. 
um, which tells you how difficult that bike was uh, was to ride. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a completely different situation. What was also interesting was at the test, um, uh, Mark talking about the. Uh, it, having a new bike and a, a new chassis, and you know they'd fi- they basically figured out the engine during the during the winter, and now it was uh, work on the chassis, work on handling, uh, and that sort of thing. So, um, you would think that by the time we get to Valencia this year, this will be a very different. Um, uh, this will be a very different bike. Yeah, because the. Uh, the, the chassis that Marquez, Pedroza and Crutzlow are using is the same chassis that Crutzlow took mid-season in 2016. That's almost two years ago. Um, and then developed for the Repsol riders basically to use in 2017. Um, yeah. So there hasn't really been a great deal of uh, chassis advancement within HRC in uh, quite some time. So, yeah, there's certainly uh, some room to uh, to improve there for sure. Um, absolutely. The, the- the, the the other interesting thing is the the design philosophy. I mean, um, uh, the, they call it HMC Honda Motor Company um, for a reason. Um, it's all about it's all about the engine. And now that they've got sort of the engine sorted, uh, the Honda engineers tend to they tend to focus on you know getting as much possible power out of the uh, out of the engine as possible. Um, uh, that's the big thing for them. They've never really concern themselves too much about uh, about handling that's the responsibility of the riders to figure it out uh, yeah. now Ma- mark is good at that but uh, we'll see how well lorenzo can actually um adapt himself to that bike uh, um you know once he gets a go on it it should be fascinating to see how he gets on and i think it should also be fascinating to see how mark marquez reacts because danny pedroza although uh a fantastic rider, one of the best MotoGP riders of the past 15 years, let's be honest, uh, you know, usually one of the three, four, five best riders on the grid at any point yeah. in the last 15 years. Um, I, I feel that Lorenzo is going to be a bit of a different proposition um, because in the past few years, at least, no one's really gone into the year expecting Pedroza to beat Marquez. Now, I don't think too many people will be expecting Lorenzo to beat Marquez from the off, but Jorge Lorenzo absolutely will be. Yeah, oh, um, yeah that, and that's the, you're exactly that, that, right. That's the big difference. The big difference is that, is that Lorenzo thinks he's going to beat him. And that in, in Gary's dynamic should be very, very interesting indeed. And I thought it was really quite clever from Alberto Puig because obviously on paper, as we, we discussed there, it might not be the best fit, but what a fantastic way to motivate your lead rider. Uh, if you think that <laughs> by the end of 2018, he could he might have won his fifth Premier Class title, he would be at 25 years old when he does that, or if he does that. Um, at the moment, you would say he's probably odds on to, to certainly um, achieve that and go level with McDoon in terms of Premier Class titles. What does he have left to do? Ah, well, let's bring across a, another five-time world champion and uh, put him in your garage and see how you, uh, see how you react. Uh, yes, and it makes you wonder where they go from there. I mean, um, uh, could it also have been as much of a motivation if they, because there was a talk that they were talking to Juan Mir, um, uh, would it have been as motivating to have a young, talented, you know, up and coming kid to bring him into the garage and say, look, this is the next big thing once you've finished? Um, would that have fired a little a fire under Mark Marquez as much as uh, uh, bringing Lorenzo in, do you think? Uh, I would say possibly not, to be honest. You don't think it would be a threat, a threat to his position? I think uh, not immediately. No, I don't think. Well, surely, like no, there's no doubt. Mir would be uh, a threat at some point, but uh, I think um, Mir coming in wouldn't. I don't know. I don't think Marquez would be as wary straight away yeah. of that as uh, as someone like Lorenzo, who 
has been his you know major challenger one of his major challenges for the past five years and and the only person to beat him to a championship yeah exactly exactly yes so uh, it should be very intriguing indeed. Um, and I guess it's worth pointing out that, you know, Lorenzo certainly wasn't the first choice to replace Danny Pedrosa and Repsol Honda. There were, we've kind of heard confirmation in previous weeks that, uh, well, uh, Puj obviously wanted to go after Joanne Zarco. Uh, Joanne Mir was one of the names touted. Uh, Danilo Petrucci, strangely again, was, uh, you know, he kind of revealed that um, at the race in Barcelona that he had been in fairly you know, advanced talks with Pooch about taking that uh, that second seat in the Repsol box. And uh, there was even some rumours that uh, Jack Miller was uh, on Pooch's shopping list as well. Yeah, I mean, rumours which Jack Miller denied. He said he knew nothing about. Um, so who knows? But the, and then at this point in sort of silly season, then it's the time where um, the managers are uh, telling all sorts of people all sorts of things. Uh, more as leverage for their own particular ends than because there's a, a, a particular grain of truth in them. Um, I refuse uh, to believe that, David. Uh, <laughs> A manager for a motorcycle racing rider uh, giving out mixed signals uh, to better it's, their uh, own ends. As, uh, as honest as the day is long, um, uh, yes, only in Svalbard in December. Um, what I do think is interesting is because Pooch comes out of this looking really quite clever, but I'm not entirely convinced that it was uh, that it was more judgment than luck because um, it was uh, Lorenzo who actually phoned Pooch to say, "Listen, um, uh, I want to come race for you." Um, and it was Pooch who basically uh, who basically accepted that. So it it, it was more that um, uh, Alberto Pooch had sort of you know argued himself into a corner, and um, uh, uh, by not managing to sign other riders, and uh, Jorge Lorenzo just happened to come along at the right time. That is worth pointing out. Absolutely, David. Yeah, I agree with you there. Uh, now, 49 points is quite a big um, deficit to try and overcome. In the championship, that's nearly two full race wins worth of points. Is Lorenzo a championship challenger this year, Dave? Uh, that, insofar as anyone is a, cha is a championship challenger, um, yeah, there's no reason he can't be a championship challenger. I mean, you can't, you've got to believe that he's going to win some more races. Um that I mean, go to some of the tracks that he that he loves, some of the tracks that he's really really good at. Um, go to Aragon, um, Silverstone, maybe uh, Brno, uh, well, Austria, Red Bull Ring, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Red, Red Bull, Sepang, yeah, yeah, Valencia. I mean, yeah. these are all great great tracks for Lorenzo. Yeah, exactly. And there's no reason he can't actually uh, win there. It, it's not so much about. Uh, the races he can win it's more about the races where he can't win I mean if he uh, at the moment it's looking like Aston's going to be a lovely day uh, you know a lovely weekend uh, I think there was the, the forecast at the moment is sunny and 27 28 degrees um, so that should be fine but if we go to if it rains or, or if it's cold on a Sunday morning or if it's if it's, if we have drizzle in um, uh, in Germany at the Saxon ring uh, maybe you know if it's cold on uh, on on Sunday uh, in 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 Austria, uh, Silverstone, all these places, uh, Phillip Island. Um, these are going to be places where where Lorenzo is going to struggle. And if he, uh, you know, if he's finishing whatever it is, I don't know, ninth, tenth, eleventh. Um, that he's not going to be a championship uh, a contender like that, and of course it depends. So much of it depends on what Mark Marquez does. 
yes, Marquez has shown himself adept at uh, limiting damage very, very well. Uh, Mugello aside, of course, but uh, this was a tough weekend. It's worth pointing out for Marquez, and he still walks away with a pretty valiant second place after two crashes and a couple of monumental saves. Yeah. Um, you know, not making it into Q2 automatically, uh, finishing outside the top 10 on Friday afternoon. It seemed like this was a, another opportunity for his rivals to gather ground on him, but uh, once again, he managed to, to step it up on Sunday. Yeah, because uh, it's, it's worth pointing out, he's only ever, when he finishes, he, he either finishes first or second so far this year um, it's just that he has he's managed to not finish a couple of times yeah that's what's given the other ones a chance uh, okay David that is I think uh, all we have to really say on Lorenzo uh, from last weekend we're going to take a short break and in part two of the show we're going to be back to discuss some of the latest rumours surrounding Yamaha and Danny Pedrosa David Emmett here just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, so welcome back. Now, uh, Jorge Lorenzo's arrival at Repsol Honda in 2019 might have spelt the end, well, still might spell the end for Danny Pedrosa's time as a Grand Prix rider in MotoGP. Uh, but there are certain rumours doing the rounds um, that Danny is certainly considering an option to stay in the class. So, David, what is that option? I think we discussed this in uh, after Mugello as well, although things have sort of moved on, what with uh, Lorenzo actually having signed for um, uh, Repsol Honda since. Uh, basically, the Spang... Well, uh, basically, the, I think the story starts with Petronas um, uh, wanting to pull out of F1 um, and having oodles of money to actually spend on uh, on sponsorship. And uh, they have, what, 20, 25 million euros uh, that they are willing to spend in MotoGP, and that will buy you... Um, that will buy you a lot of support and a lot of the, the you know, the, the very best people in the, uh, in the class. So, um, uh, Petronas are teaming up with the Sepang International Circuit to run a team. The idea was to have, uh, Jorge Lorenzo back on a, uh, uh, back on a Yamaha. Uh, but obviously Lorenzo signed for, for, um, uh, signed for Epsilon Honda. And so the obvious choice is because I, I mean, as I understand it, they want, a, you know, they want a top rider on the bike and the only sort of proven top rider, race winning uh, rider available is Danny Pedrosa. So it looks like, um, we could see perhaps even at Assen an announcement made about, um, uh, the Petronas Yamaha, about this Petronas Yamaha team, uh, under the auspices of the Sepang International Circuit. Um, uh, running with uh, probably Franco Morbidelli, um, which will be, well, firstly, it'll be great to see. And secondly, it will be, uh, it's an obvious link up because of his link up through the VR46 Academy and uh, Valentino Rossi's close ties to Yamaha and also the VR46 is close ties to Yamaha. Uh, and then a second top rider and that rider, uh, could well be, uh, Danny, Pedro uh, Danny Pedrosa. So do we see, does Danny go to Yamaha or does he retire, Neil? It's uh, the million dollar question at the moment. Um, if you asked me that before, about a week ago, uh, well, in fact, uh, just a little bit over a week ago, uh, I probably would have said he was going to retire, to be honest. Um, there have been some rumours 
doing the rounds at certain races this year that uh, even before he knew he was out of Repsol Honda, he was considering retirement injuries in the first part of the year. Um, really plagued his campaign again. Yet another campaign has sort of been ruined by uh, early injuries. Um, and Danny's not getting any younger, 32 years old now. And yep. uh, he's not going to win the championship this year. And, you know, he's been in a factory team all of his life uh, in MotoGP for 13 seasons, stepping down to a satellite squad. I'm using that term. Obviously, it's going to technically be a satellite squad, but, um, you know, it's it's still not the, the very best of the best. Um, it does make you wonder. Uh, whether he would find that appealing. But, um, you know, he's clearly explored the, the Yamaha option before. I think we can say that he was quite keen to to take Yamaha up in their, their offer. Uh, well, the possibility of taking Yamaha up in the offer in 2016 when he was having an awful year with Honda and yeah. Yamaha eventually went with Vinales. Um, I think Pedroza was quite keen to go down that road at that time yeah um, i think uh, i think yamaha were quite keen i mean they were obviously trying to poach vinales vinales was their first choice and they ended up with him um but um uh, i think and i think they were using pedrosa as uh, as leverage on uh, vinales at the time but i think it, you know if vinales if they hadn't been able to sign uh, vinales they would have been absolutely perfectly happy to sign uh, pedrosa he would have been you know they would have been just as happy to have him next to rossi as vinales yeah and you feel that a rider of uh, of his achievements, I think only Agostini is it Agostini. There's only I think one or two riders that have scored more podiums in uh, in Grand Prix racing than Danny yeah. uh, in the history. Um, Rossi being one of those, and it does make you you know a, a man of that standing. Does he want to buy out of the sport after a season like this? Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure there's something inside um, which is kind of burning wants you know part of him that wants to prove that he can still do it and there's that curiosity you know he would be on a an essentially a full factory yamaha yeah um yeah i mean we're, we're, a, we're, a bike we're, that we all believe would be you know much more suited to to his style and his yeah absolutely. absolutely and as cal crutchlow keeps saying if he was um uh you know if danny pedrosa ever gets on a on a yamaha we won't be able to see which way he goes so we'll be able to see just how good a judge of um of talent uh cal crutchlow is because it would uh it, i mean it would be a lot easier to ride um it would be it would suit his naturally very smooth style uh so yeah yeah i mean I, I hope it happens i think it's gonna be interesting i'm not sure from a business point of view it's it's interesting because danny has ridden hondas all throughout his career uh, and so he could make an awful lot of money if he if he retires on a honda um, and now you wonder how it would be, how that would be affected if he goes and rides a Yamaha for two years and then retires, uh, and then tries to come back as a or as a Honda ambassador or perhaps a Yamaha ambassador or whatever. But um, and a Red uh, Bull ambassador as well, of course. Yeah, he's been a Red yeah. Bull athlete for a long, long time as well. And uh, Yamaha, obviously, with uh, very strong links indeed with Monster. Uh, yes, because there's lots of there is lots of talk that uh, the factory team could lose the Movistar sponsorship, uh, and that Monster could move into that space, could actually move on and, uh, and become uh, because obviously they don't have the Tech Three team anymore. Because the Tech Three team going to KTM means they're going to be Toro Rosso um, essentially. Um, uh, then there's the, the fact that there is talk that Monster could be or could be sort of a, a part sponsor of this uh, of this Sepang team, or uh, yeah, sure. or uh, uh, and I think also Frank Morbidelli is already a, a, a Monster rider. So 
Uh, yeah, I mean, somehow with the various, I mean, I don't even drink um, uh, energy drinks, but somehow Danny Pedrosa always seemed much more like a Red Bull rider than a yeah, than a monster uh, uh, than a monster rider. Whereas Cal Crutchlow is definitely a monster rider. <laughs> yes, I don't know how you make that distinction, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, there's certainly been some mutterings that um, teams have been complaining about the difficulty at finding sponsors in recent weeks, recent years, recent months. Um, and part of that is because the viewing figures in countries like Spain now are a, a small fraction of what they were whenever the sport was being aired on um, terrestrial TV. Now, obviously, we're, we're, you know, if you're in the UK or you're in Italy um, or in Spain, you have to pay X amount of euros or pounds every month to subscribe to um, a specific channel. And uh, that has seen the, the, the sort of viewing figures uh, decrease quite a lot. So there's a bit of talk, I believe, um, certainly in Spain, of uh, running a few races next year on terrestrial TV, possibly the Spanish races. And this was a rumour, I think, during the rounds last weekend. And Movistar obviously wouldn't uh, maybe take so kindly to that because their channel, uh, their sports channel, is the one that airs um, the, the, the MotoGP races in Spain. Um, so that might be one of the sources of their uh, of their unwillingness to continue with Yamaha. I'm not too sure. That is just a mild speculation. Um but yes, I think Pedroza on a Yamaha, we would all pay a ticket to see that. Now, there's obviously been quite a lot of other movements uh, on the rider market since uh, our last show that we did at Mugello. Uh, Suzuki have confirmed the signature of Joanne Mir to partner Alex Rins in 2019 and 2020. Uh, is this a good signing? I think it, I think it's absolutely a, go a good signing. I mean, I would have liked to have seen um, either Lorenzo or, uh, or Pedroza on that bike also, just because I think... Uh, there is an added value to having having an established, um, uh, you know, an established rider, a, rider, a, a proven winner on that bike. Uh, but as I understand it, Suzuki management were just so sick of uh, their current star rider um, that um, they didn't want um, that they didn't want that anymore, and they would pr rather try and nurture young talent. What's interesting is um, the uh, contract. The, the 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 way the contracts are constructed, basically both Rince and um uh, and Mir are tied into uh you know a four it, what is essentially a four year deal a two year deal plus uh, a plus a two year extension which I think Suzuki um ha, has control over um, that seems that seems like a really long time to tie someone into uh, to a manufacturer and it's a big risk for a for a rider's sake. It is, but then they've lost. They've had their fingers burnt a little bit. The past with Fidialo is getting out of their reach uh, during 2016, going to Yamaha just as he was possibly uh, ready to fight for the championship, maybe, yeah. with Suzuki. It might have been it might have been a bit of a stretch, um, but I think it was interesting. I spoke to Davide Brivio on Monday after the race. Uh, there was a one-day test up at Montmelo uh, at the circuit, and he was saying that basically they get the best performances out of the riders that consider being at Suzuki as a, a real achievement to be in a factory MotoGP team as, you know, the basically the, the shining moment of their career. Um, he said he doesn't feel that that is the case. They don't get the best out of the riders if Suzuki is basically the only other option on the table. Yeah. And yeah. you rather get the impression that uh, after Andrea Iannone was dumped by Ducati in 2016 and then went to Suzuki, that has been possibly part of the uh, the message that his body language and his behavior in the garage has conveyed. And that's possibly what Brivio got from speaking to uh, Lorenzo's management um, because they were in talks for quite some time. I believe uh, they, they were 
they, they made contact as early as some of the preseason tests whenever things were going to arrive for Lorenzo and Ducati. And you rather fancy that maybe Lorenzo would have gone to Suzuki thinking, well, you know, this is a lesser factory than Ducati, than Honda, than Yamaha. That might yeah, have played a part as well. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a very valid point. Again, uh, it's a good point that you made. It was it's been uh, Lorenzo's management talking to Suzuki, but uh, Lorenzo actually phoned up Alberto Puig um, uh, directly. You know, sort of they were speaking rider to rider um, or rider to ex rider, uh, and so yeah, that's that's a very very it's a very different attitude. It's certainly a different attitude, but um, yes, he didn't uh, seem he didn't show that sort of uh, that sort of keenness to uh, to call up David Brivio. No, 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 no. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so there's there's something to that, but I mean, the thing is, do you take because you're gambling on the future versus uh, versus taking uh, taking you know someone who's proven themselves, someone who's who's demonstrated that they're capable of winning. So uh, I think it's it's uh, it's it's certainly an interesting and a and a, and a brave strategy. Uh, I'll tell you in about four years whether it works or not. <laughs> That is why they pay you the big box. That sort of <laughs> That's foresight. right. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting also something that Brivio said. If you look at what Rince essentially did in half a season, it, because it was only half a season that he was fully fit last year. Yeah. By the end of that half season, I'll use that in inverted commas, he was scoring top five, top six finishes, which yep. is not bad going whatsoever. And if you look at his form through preseason, and indeed the first race, okay, there were crashes in Qatar, um, crashes, it's harassed. But in those races, he was, you know, in top five positions, possibly fighting for the podium. Uh, he's got one podium and was, uh, what, one second off the podium at Mugello. Um, you know, I think Brivio feels that he could be a certified team leader and uh, Mir, well, judging by what he was saying on Monday, he feels Mir can be fighting for the top six by the end of 2019, which is very ambitious. Um, but looking at Mir, how he's adapted to, uh, certainly to Honda machinery in Moto3 in 2017 and then Moto2 machinery this year. Uh, he's yeah. clearly a quick learner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the fact that he's already got to, uh, he already has a podium in Moto2 is really, really important. Uh, and the fact that he just week in, week out, out he looks like, uh, um, he doesn't start every weekend as the favourite, uh, as the favourite to win the race, but he's, uh, he starts, uh, every weekend as being someone you have to sort of take account of you can't rule him out of um uh of being on the podium and and, and winning so uh he's making exactly the kind of progress that uh, that he wants but it was interesting that um he said um uh, i think in the press conference where he was talking about you know uh, one of the reasons to go up to moto gp so early after only a single year in moto 2 is to stay in the cycle we've now uh, and this has changed you know i've only been in the paddock what eight uh, nine years um but it's changed very it's changed a lot since i came up now we seem to have sort of fallen into this uh cycle of two-year contracts so everyone everyone is on two-year contracts um all of the factory riders are on two-year contracts and it's except, all synchronized except Danilo petrucci it must be said yes except for except for danilo uh, petrucci yes indeed yes indeed he is the uh, he's the odd man out sort of settled into this uh, this cycle of two-year contracts and um uh, that means that would have been basically that uh, Mir would have had to wait for would have had to spend three years in in Moto Two before he could step up instead of uh, um, instead of two years. Yeah, step so up it, into a factory team. Yeah, step up it or just yes, exactly, step up into a factory team. So yeah, the it, it, it's also the case that you have to take these opportunities when they come along. Exactly, Andrea Iannone going to Aprilia is that a good move? Uh, 
it is it is for it is for Aprilia, but it isn't for Iannone. Um, uh, Aprilia don't appear to have don't be appear to be willing to uh, spend the money or the resources uh, to make a competitive bike. Also, there is some friction between Grassini, who own the team, and uh, Albiciano. Albiciano. Um, uh, is acting too much uh, as a team manager um, as far as Grassini is concerned. Um, you know, Grassini wants to run the team. The thing he thinks Albaciana should be getting on and um, uh, basically taking more of a Gigi Delinio role, which is, you know, focused on just make the bloody bike faster. Um, and more reliable. Uh, and, oh, yeah, yeah. Stop it from blowing up every 10 minutes. Um, I think it's going to be difficult for Alicia Spargaro because, um, you know, I mean, an Italian rider in an Italian uh, team uh, on an Italian bike. That's it's pretty. It's pretty obvious who's going to get the 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 the, the shiny stuff first. And not just a, any Italian rider, a combative, a difficult presence like Andrea Iannone. That yes. should. Uh, I think we should see some fireworks certainly in that squad uh, in 2018. And I guess that just brings us to the final uh, big change regarding the factory teams. Um, Daniel Petrucci obviously moves up from Pramac uh, into the, the factory Ducati squad next to Andrea De Vizioso. And interestingly, David, at, at uh, Montmelo, he was telling us that it was him that insisted on a one-year deal. Uh, he didn't want to sign anything longer than a one-year deal, which I found quite uh, quite hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that, you know, he was given an option to have a second year, and I don't quite understand, I didn't quite understand the logic behind that. I mean, I don't know if you did. Uh, yeah, well, particularly when he has, you know, and he will have Jack Miller uh, on the same, essentially the same bike as him next year. Miller will be Pramac's lead rider uh, on a GP19, same bike essentially as Davizioso and Petrucci. And from everything that Miller's been saying recently, he's on a one-year deal as well, a one-year extension uh, in 2019. He'll be doing everything he can to be a Ducati factory rider in 20. Yeah, I mean, basically, we'll have a, um, we'll have a rerun of, uh, what was it, 2000 and, uh, 2016 or t- uh, 2017 with uh, uh, Scott Redding and Danilo Petrucci battling over the, uh, 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 you know, battling, fighting over the over a single place for the, for, for the following season. Um, and that ended so well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> didn't it just? Didn't it just? But um, there is a lot to criticise Danilo Petrucci for, particularly his um, uh, his rather physical riding, shall we say? Um, but um, you've got to love it. just his grit and the way that he, the, the way that he came through, the way that he came through the, the championship, the that he came through that he started on, you know, racing six hundreds because he was so big and he. Um, uh, honestly, his he his work at um, uh, especially at Yoda on the uh, uh, on the Aprilia and on the uh, on the Suter BMW, uh, th- those were really really tough years. You know, going out and finishing last, knowing that you're gonna you're gonna finish last, knowing that you're three seconds slower than the. Uh, um, than the rest, it, it, but still going out there and giving it, you know, everything you've got for for that year. That to me, to to see that sort of grind being rewarded is um, uh, is really pleasing. And um, I don't think he's going to trouble Andrea Dovizioso too much. And I think he's I think he's definitely a downgrade on Jorge Lorenzo. Um, but it's definitely going to be interesting to watch. 
Should be, yeah. It's worth saying that Petrucci came into the MotoGP class via the European Superstock Championship, which is really as uh, unconventional as it comes. Yeah, and, and uh, it, uh, what I love about that is the fact that, you know, because the MotoGP paddock is, is an incredibly snobbish place. Nobody looks at, you know... It's very insular. It's, it's totally insular. I mean... Uh, because the teams have, they have uh, quite often uh, they'll have Moto Two or Moto Three teams, and they'll have teams in the in the FIM CEV, and they'll have pre Moto Three teams. Uh, uh, a lot of them, there is this sort of like talent pipeline, and they never look outside the talent pipeline. So it's fantastic to see someone come out from totally left field. I mean, you know, look at Cal Crutcher came in from World Superbikes, and he's uh, he's a multiple race winner, and on a factory contract, and has yeah. been a factory rider. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, but I don't think you would call uh, World Superbikes out of the left field, whereas uh, certainly European Superstock is. It's very, uh, a long way out in left field. Yes, indeed. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. But even then, you know, MotoGP teams, they're just not willing to to take a look at at World Superbike riders. I mean, if they did, Johnny Ray and Chas Davies would be in MotoGP. um, And would have been uh, in MotoGP for some time now. Yeah, 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 yes, yes, exactly. But um, the, no one really wants to take a uh, uh, take a risk on them or take a chance on them. Perhaps also because they're a little bit older, but uh, still, it's a shame. I conclude with that, David, and that basically, speaking of conclusions, that takes us to the end of the second part of this show. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back for part three in just one moment's time. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show. Okay, so welcome back to the third part of our show. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the post-race test that we had um, at the Montmelo circuit on Monday after the race. Uh, some interesting developments there. And then we're going to go on to the winners and losers of our race weekend. Um, David, the test we saw, I think uh, Mark Marquez was the fastest rider there. Um, you never really want to read too much into the the final times at the test. I think Marquez was fastest in only second, uh, Rabat third, a bit of a bit of a strange top three. Um, but uh, it was quite interesting to see some of the things that Marquez was testing. And also Danilo Petrucci, before he had a crash, he had uh, quite a big itinerary of new items to put through their paces. Yeah, I, I think, it, I mean, it, uh, Petrucci was great because he... Uh, <laughs> Once riders get into factory teams, the first thing they're taught is to not say anything about anything to anyone ever. And so uh, you get lots of things about, um, yes, uh, we tried some things and it was the details. Positives and negatives. Positives and negatives. Yeah, crowd. Yeah, yeah. If you had a, if you had a drinking, um, a drinking game on positives and negatives after a uh, after a test, you would last for about three debriefs. Um, yeah, we need to make up some bingo cards. I think for the next. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Put people off by shouting bingo. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, uh, but Petrucci was fantastic because he talked all about all the things that they that he got. He had a new gearbox, new exhaust, new swing arm. Uh, he talked about what they were aimed at doing. Talked about this, but you know the gearbox and the and the exhaust, all about making uh, uh, the corner exit smoother and um, uh, and getting off the corner. Uh, uh, basically, that transition to that transition to positive throttle. 
um, uh, being much much smoother. Um, then he, when he was testing the uh, new swing arm, he managed to fall off and ding it up, so he couldn't uh, test it any further. He managed to ding himself up as well, which is not uh, not big or clever, but uh, um, that's just the way it was. And then you contrast that with what Mark Marcus was saying, who you know, who goes out on an all black bike, had been trying new aerodynamics, and then he just says, you know, we were some details the only thing that he sort of accidentally let slip was that it was aimed at making the bike a little bit easier uh, to break into corners and to um and especially sort of on corner entry so uh, but we really had to drag that out of him and he was spending all of his time trying not to say what he was doing yes yes you might think well the strongest part of the the honda is its uh, braking ability but it is as we know uh quite critical in that area and one only had to watch Mark Marquez uh, during free practice last weekend to see just how critical that was losing the front uh, so many times and that's been a feature of his riding I guess for the last couple of years and, and a feature of the Honda indeed so uh, yeah, yeah it, it would be an interesting exercise to actually go back over the past couple of years and count up the crashes of the various manufacturers Yes, that would be one for your Friday night David that's your, yeah, uh, exactly. your, that's yeah, your homework yeah. for this evening um, Yes, okay and that was all a bit of a contrast to uh, Yamaha. We spoke to Rossi, we spoke to Vinales after the uh, after the day of testing. I don't think Vinales had some minor electronic changes to work on. Uh, yeah. Rossi had a few small things. I think he was trying a different seating position. They were maybe working a little bit on the ergonomics of the of the tank, uh, rider position, um, very minor details. He said none of them worked. Uh, he was quite curt in his dealings with us on Monday, um, saying that none, nothing really paid off and they're going to be using the exact same bike in Aston, as they were uh, on Sunday's race. Yeah, I mean... Uh, What's is... going on, David? What's going on? Yamaha have been... The, the riders have been calling out for changes for for months now. And and, and, and and this is a test that... Was it Lamar or Mugello? Where, I think it was Mugello that Mavericks basically said, Yamaha promised me a bike I could win on. Yes. Uh, and they um, uh, and he, uh, they hasn't been given it. Uh, so, it, yeah. It was Jerez. It was the Sunday night at Jerez where Rossi really gave them a... yeah. A stern yeah, talking to exactly, and and there's, there's still nothing happening. You you have to suspect that either something really seriously major is going to turn up um, at a race soon. I mean, you would expect. Yeah, there's some rumours that that maybe something is coming for Saxon Ring before the summer break. Which which would be odd because normally, I mean, for a start, Saxon Ring is a terrible track to be trying something out just because it's such a uh such a very very peculiar track um you know it's all left-handers the, the bike never really edges although i suppose if 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 your problem is that you can't keep your uh you, you're wearing the right the, uh, the you know if you're wearing your tires out if, if tire wear is your major issue then uh i suppose saxon rings a really good place to to try that and again at um um at Barcelona, they the factory Yamahas had uh, their rear sort of you know mud guards uh, had a had various slots and holes in there to try and let some of the some of the hot air out uh, and some of the cool air in to try to control temperatures on the on the rear tire, but it n- not to very much effect. So yes, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting they don't seem to have anything to test there they have to have something soon i suppose also uh, uh is a good place to be testing stuff because the next test will be at the next race after that in Brno in uh, in early august uh so you know you can 
give someone something, you sacrifice Saxon Ring because you're not expecting to do very well. I mean, you know, Mark Marcus is going to win at Saxon Ring. He wins every year at Saxon Ring. Um, so you might as well give up on that race, see what you can make uh, of the um, uh, make of the test to start working for certainly the second half of the, se- uh, of the season, prepare the Bruno test and uh, and all the rest of it. Although we say, you know, give up on the second half of the season. Um, Valentina Rossi is second and only 27 pi- points behind uh, Mark Marcus. So we've Average got Aston coming- third and Johan Zarco is fourth. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, well, here we are slagging Yamaha off, and yet they are second, third, and fourth in the championship, and uh, uh, and probably their 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 biggest uh, their biggest rivals. Plus, we've got uh, Aston coming up, where Valentino won last year, but it has been seventeen races since they won a race. Yeah, Rossi's won three of the last five audience at Aston. Zarco was in the victory fight there last year. Vinales would have been in the victory fight had he not screwed up qualifying so spectacularly in the wet on the, the Saturday afternoon. Um, yes, if there is one circuit on the calendar, you would bank Yamaha at least fighting for the race win. It would be uh, it would certainly be Aston, so that should be very interesting to see uh, what happens there. Um, I think I saw a stat. If they, um, if they don't win at Aston, that means they're their winless streak will have stretched beyond 18 races, um, which means that would be their longest winless streak since 1997 and half of 1998 as well, which goes to show just how uh, how rare an occurrence it is that uh, Yamaha have fallen away so much. If if they don't win there, I mean, there's no way they win at the Saxon Ring. Their next chance would be Bruno, where they go quite well and which also suits the bike reasonably well. Uh, But that would then be 18, 19 races you know, without a, without a win, and that's it's starting to look pretty shocking. Yes, yeah, and Bruno obviously in the middle of the Czech summer. It's usually very hot there. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe not the ideal conditions for Yamaha, but uh, yes, let's see how these. Uh, well, let's see how these coming races go before we spark, start speculating the second half of the season. Um, okay, thanks for that update on the test, Dave. Uh, that brings us to uh, the final section of our show: winners and losers from the Grand Prix of Catalonia. Seventh race of 2018. Uh, who was your big winner from last weekend? I think that my big winner um, from this last weekend is uh, Marco Bezzecchi in Moto3. Um, I mean, we didn't talk about Moto2 or Moto3, but uh, he finished second. Jorge Martin finished, um, uh, uh, managed to uh, uh, managed to crash out. Um, another DNF. Um, his uh, Bezeki in the championship, his lead keeps on growing. What is it now? It's nearly uh, 19, points. 19 points. Yeah. Um, uh, over his teammate. Oh, oh, no, no. Over Martin's teammate. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, Bezeki just keeps on putting it, putting all these things to, uh, together to um, uh, uh, to win a championship, and every time things look like they're not going his way, he manages to uh, to, to pull a rabbit out of the hat. So um, for me, I mean, there were a lot of fantastic rides in in MotoGP, also in Moto Two, absolutely outstanding rides in Moto Two, um, which was a good race again, which is uh, also very very pleasing um, because it used to be nap time, but it's no longer nap time. We actually have to pay to pay attention to Moto Two. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I think I'm going to go with Moto with with Marco Bezzecchi. And how about you, Neil? Uh, well, you've mentioned Moto Two. It would be hard to overlook uh, Fabio Quartararo, who really pulled the performance out of. Uh, I was going to say out of nowhere. He was incredibly strong all weekend. Uh, yeah. At the at the at Montmelo, fast on Friday afternoon, uh, secured his first pole position in the class uh, on Saturday, and then just 
put together a really spectacular ride. Um, yeah, it, it was outstanding. It was it, absolutely outstanding. Genuinely outstanding. And to do that on a speed-up chassis, a uh, chassis that hasn't had artistic success in the Moto2 class since, I think, Sam Lowe's back in 2015, um, Quadraro has really steadily built himself up this year. I've been quite impressed with uh, how he's gone about his business because I remember speaking to Danny Kent during pre-season testing and Kent was quite a good deal faster than Quadraro. Yeah. And uh, Quadraro seemed quite lost. He's had a pretty average rookie season in Moto2. Uh, before that, was completely lost in Moto3. One of the most talented riders, I think, in that class. Absolutely, no doubt at all. Uh, vast, vast reserves of natural talent. Um, but... Um, yeah, I think his, his previous best this year was maybe a seventh or an eighth. Uh, and for him just to come to the, the circuit of, of Catalonia and dominate like that was really something because Miguel Oliveira at the moment is riding exceptionally well. And for yeah. him to overtake Oliveira and pull away from him with the minimum of fuss was really impressive. But even Quadrao is not going to be my big winner because I have to go with Valentino Rossi. Um, it's the fourth race weekend in a row that he has comprehensively outshone his younger teammate. I was one of the people doubting Rossi and his ability to do such a thing during preseason, um, because I thought even throughout 2017, even though the Yamaha were having big issues, even though Vinales was having big issues, more times than not, he had the beating of Rossi. And we've seen Rossi do things in the past two races, which I don't think uh, should have been possible with that Yamaha. Yeah. Um, because if you look at uh, this, the early part of the season, even if you look at Jerez, Zarco was there fighting with him or beating him. But the last two race weekends, Rossi has been comprehensively faster than not just Vinales, but Zarco as well. Um, and I think that is just experience. And, uh, well, I don't know. Um, it sounds very vague saying these kind of these terms, you know, experience and will to win and all the rest of it. But I just think his manner of working is really paying off. He's obviously been here before and he's, he's basically, he's second in the championship through not being spectacular, but just being very, very clever, calm, methodical and working in a very intelligent way. I think there's similarities to, you know, how Davizioso was kind of handling his situation last year. Um, and Rossi comes into a race weekend thinking, okay, third is possibly going to be the best we can hope for. And he does everything he can to do that. And, um, you know, he shouldn't have been on the podium at Magello. There's no way he should have been on the podium. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, the, 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 that podium in Magello was just, that was, that was proper, proper class. That was, that was just pure, um, uh, will rather than anything else. Yes. Um, he had no business being anywhere near it. He's, uh, he was, he got a little bit lucky in Barcelona with, uh, with Dovicioso crashing out, but, um, uh, you know, he was comfortably, uh, comfortably ahead of that group. Um, he was, you know, pretty much in charge of the, of the whole thing. So yeah, I, I, that's, I mean, I have absolutely no argument with Valentino Rossi doing that because, but it is experience. This is exactly, uh, as you say, it's a lot like, um, it's almost the polar opposite of Jorge Lorenzo in that he's not winning sort of spectacularly uh, but he never has a bad race he just never I mean the only bad race he's had was when he was knocked off by um, uh, by Mark Marquez exactly and it's worth pointing out that uh, Jerez in 2017 and uh, this race uh, were complete unmitigated disasters for movie star Yamaha yeah absolutely shocking right like race weekends like of which we basically haven't seen in hadn't seen in years um yet rossi managed to get a podium here and i think he was what fourth fifth fifth at Jerez, wasn't a million yeah. miles away um so there is that to take into account this was one of the races that we feared might uh, really haunt uh, the movie star guys you know with uh, low grip and challenging track conditions uh, but rossi uh, managed to pull it out of that again how many times have we said that 
Yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's still got it. Yes. So who is your big loser of the weekend, David? Uh, I'm going to take the uh, easy way out and just say uh, uh, Andrea Dovicioso because he, he buckled. He buckled under the pressure. Um, he threw away, you know, he gets a lot of points back on Mark Marcus uh, two weeks ago at Mugello. And um, he just pushed a little bit too hard um, uh, trying to stay with uh, Mark. And I, th- I mean, the, the, there was definitely an element of, um, firstly, being outshone by his teammate again for the second race in a row. Uh, secondly, uh, seeing Marquez ahead of him and wanting to finish ahead of him. Um, which I think is a uh, probably the wrong decision, um, and that just put a lot of pressure. On, and the you know he washes the wire, the the front out. I think in turn five, uh, he falls off, loses too many points, and you know he's sixty nine. What is it? Forty nine. Uh, Forty nine. Forty nine points behind uh, uh, behind Marcus. That's a, that's a big ask. He's going to need Marcus to. Uh, to you know, to, to make some mistakes, he's going to have to win a lot of races in the second half of the season again. Yeah, um, crucially, is he's behind. Okay, him and Lorenzo are on the same number of points at the moment, but because Lorenzo's won two races as opposed yeah. to Davizio's has won, he is now behind his teammate um, for the first time in the championship since Lorenzo arrived at Chicago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is you know, also a big deal, and that always changes the, the it changes the dynamic in a team as well, especially Italian teams. Um, uh, riders who've been in Ducati before have, uh, have complained off the record that um, uh, basically you get the, the rider who's winning gets all the parts, um, they, and they get they get the extra attention. So yeah, uh, now it's Lorenzo who's winning, and even though Lorenzo is um, is departing, uh, the 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 garage sort of naturally gravitates towards uh, t- towards that side of the garage. So it's. Uh, yeah, it, it's putting him in a in a difficult uh, situation. He's going to have to have a good weekend at Aston. Certainly, certainly. I'm going to uh, raise you, David, and actually say that Ducati is the big loser from this race weekend. The rider may have won the race quite convincingly and showed the potential of uh, their bike to be uh, on a par with Honda at very least in 2018. But I think the fact that Jorge Lorenzo has managed to slip through their grasp, slip through their fingers just as he's hitting this form with this bike. I think that must be a real uh, source of frustration, uh, certainly with Gigi Delinia, uh, who is Lorenzo's big ally in Ducati, um, and who has made, you know, has strived basically to make uh, his rider more happy, more at ease, more comfortable on a bike, which is notoriously difficult to handle, difficult to turn. Um, yeah, now Ducati appear that they have a f- they have two guys that can fight for the championship and one of them is going to go away and Petrucci I think is a very able replacement um, but is he a guy that's going to take the fight to uh, to Marquez on, you know it would take something quite exceptional I think for that to happen um, and there's only you know there's not very many riders in the world capable of doing what Lorenzo's done in the past two races so the fact that he's got away um, and, and you know I think Ducati have done all that they could to try and help him feel comfortable. Lorenzo said that, you know, he didn't get the seat unit in time. Uh, they didn't trust his feedback earlier in the year. But then, basically, Lorenzo's feedback, I think, from the, the test in Thailand onwards for a couple of race weekends just wasn't wasn't useful because he was completely <laughs> lost. His head was his head was completely gone. So I don't think Ducati can be blamed in that sense. But 
um, to have taken a deep breath and maybe assess the situation after Mugello for their CEO not to have come out and uh, said those uh, said those things about uh, their their 12 million asset 12 million euro asset um, yes I think that uh, these are all reasons that must be a real source of frustration for for Delinia at least. Yeah, I mean that, that that's the thing uh, I, I think you're very you make a good point the biggest loser for or the reason that Ducati are such big losers here is because of politics internal team politics um um and factory politics because uh, you know Lorenzo was Delinia's hire uh, Delinia wanted Lorenzo he got Lorenzo um Dominicalo was against it from the start uh, when it looked like uh, Lorenzo wasn't going to be able to perform, then Deligne gets a lot of pressure. Um, all of a sudden, Lorenzo is winning again, and uh, the sort of the shoe is on the other foot. So it's not going to be, uh, and especially now that uh, now that the Lorenzo is leaving, it, there is there's going to be a certain amount of unresolved tension in the um, uh, in that character, especially if they have a bad year next year. But uh, on the other hand, the good thing is that by Making a bike to suit Lorenzo, they've made a much better bike. I think. I mean, the the, the bike now is uh, is completely different to, uh, or not completely different. It's much better than it was two years ago before uh, before Lorenzo came. Lorenzo has had a um, a very clear uh, effect on on bike development and and has helped sort of you know push it in a particular direction, which which everyone is going to benefit from, including you know young riders who come in. Peko Banyaya next year, I think Peko Banyaya next year is probably going to be on a are uh, going to be on a GP eighteen, and that GP eighteen yes. is going to be a perfectly good. Uh, it's going to be a very capable. Um, uh, a, a very capable bike, and uh, he should be able to jump on and be uh, relatively competitive uh, fairly quickly. So it's going to be interesting to see. Yes, uh, Davizioso Petrucci uh, fronted attack uh, with Jack Miller in the wing is not too bad. You have to say, but yeah, uh, and and and, and Dark Horse Pecco Banyaya sort of coming from the back, it's definitely going to be it's going to be really, 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 really interesting. But if Lorenzo had stayed next year, then a hundred percent, you're talking about uh, a championship challenge. Yeah, a Lorenzo Marquez face off. Yeah, for sure. Well, maybe David, maybe if things, uh, well, strange elements that uh, the Dutch Grand Prix sometimes produces appear. Uh, we could still have a Lorenzo Marquez face-off. Um, that brings us to the end of all we have to talk about, Dave. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. We are off to uh, your beloved country. We are uh, to a little farmhouse next. in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. Yes, that should be uh, that should be uh, one for the memoirs. Certainly, uh, come the end of our careers. Uh, <laughs> but the, the Dutch Grand Prix next up, obviously the the Cathedral of Speed, as. Uh, it's rather tackily uh, referred to. <laughs> so they've got a great big side on the outside calling it the Cathedral of Speed now. So, um, uh, so um, they put it up especially for you, Neil. All right, perfect. Yes, exactly. Well, uh, ignore my cynicism in that case. Um, <laughs> it's but still they- magnificent. I mean, despite the fact that it did, they did ruin it by taking away the North Loop, um, uh, which they had to because uh, because just basically the city was encroaching on it, um, and also I think they needed the money, so they had to sell the uh, they had to sell the ground. But apart from that. Um, it's still uh, th- that bottom half, the south, the south half of that track is just absolutely magnificent. Still, yeah, worth going for the final sector alone. Certainly, yeah, to see that. Yeah, uh, and that that chicane is exactly that last section is exactly what a um, uh, uh, what a race track needs. You know, a fast section where riders can stick together, and then a, a chicane for where they, where you know it's 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 do or die for glory. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Shakin at the end of a track, uh, Suzuka comes to mind as well. One of those yeah. vintage uh, final sectors, for sure. Uh, yes, the trip to the Netherlands is always uh, always excellent. Uh, very, uh, yeah, very nice, hospitable welcome we received there. That should be a good one. And uh, Div, I guess we will speak again after the conclusion of the Dutch Grand Prix. Um, thank you very much for your company on this uh, warm summer's day. Yes, and thank you indeed, listener, for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to us, the Paddock Pass podcast, for this latest episode and uh, as I said before we'll be back after the Dutch Grand Prix at Essen now is as good a time as any to remind you that if you're not following us on Twitter uh, please do that to get all the the recent updates about uh, our shows uh, that is uh, twitter.com at Paddock Pass Pod or just at at Paddock Pass Pod I think at, at Paddock Pass Pod yes we're also on Facebook that's facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast correct and if you want to find us or if you find us in one of the uh, Apple podcast services, uh, leaving a review there can really greatly help other people find our show. And it's always much appreciated to hear. If you have any feedback uh, for what we're doing, uh, yep, that would also be welcomed as well. So thank you very much for your time, and we'll speak to you soon. Bye. And the winners and the losers. Yes, indeed. And it's worth pointing out that you can't choose me as the loser, all right? That's <laughs> just not fair. I'm a loser, baby. Yes, exactly. Yeah. My um, biggest loser is Moby. Moby? Moby. <laughs>